Good evening. It is good to see you here this, this evening. Someone was leaving this morning, and I said, good morning. And they looked down, and they said, good afternoon. <laughs> if that's how you feel, then fine, fine, fine. Good afternoon. Isaiah chapter 45, if you have your Bibles, we're going to start there. We'll find our way back to Genesis as we continue our discussion, our thoughts about being made in God's image. Tonight, we talk about it from the reality that we are God's children. And that's one of the wonderful uh, demonstrations throughout the Bible, presentations of God and humanity, is that He is our Father. And everything that that conjures up is what we should understand about that spiritually. The Hebrew writer refers to God as the Father of spirits. Zechariah says in chapter 12 and verse 1, he forms the spirit of man within him. Solomon says the spirit returns to God that gave it. And so the scripture is very clear that God is the one who forms the spirit. He is the father of spirits, and that ultimately makes us his children. We are redeemed through Jesus, and that too makes us born again into the kingdom of God, and thus we become his children that way after sin. Isaiah chapter 45 is a prophecy about Cyrus the king, and Cyrus is going to be the one who delivers God's people ultimately and allows them back from captivity to return to Jerusalem. And God speaks about Cyrus in this chapter, early in the chapter, actually ending chapter 4 into chapter 45. He calls Cyrus by name, calls him his anointed. And in this chapter, God talks about the fact that he created the world and they created man to, be, to live on the world. And so in chapter 45 and verse number 9, the Bible says, Woe to the one who quarrels with his maker. And earthenware vessel among the vessels of the earth. Will the clay say to the potter, What are you doing? Or the thing you are making say, He has no hands. Woe to him who says to a father, what are you begetting? Or to a woman, to what are you giving birth? Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel and his maker, ask me about the things to come concerning my sons, and you shall commit to me the work of my hands. It is I who made the earth and created man upon it. I stretched out the heavens with my hands, and I ordained all their host. This continues all the way down to verse number 18, where the Bible says, For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, he is the God who formed the earth and made man, made it. He established it and did not create it a waste place, but formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is none else. God said he made the world, but he also says he made it to be inhabited. He didn't make it void or waste. He made it then with us in mind. And the creation account spells that out. God built his house, if you will. That's the way the Hebrew writer describes it in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse number 3, maybe chapter 3 and verse number 4. He says that every house is built by some man, but he who built all things is God. And God built his house. He did that, and he made us on day number 6 in his image. And so the scriptures begins to let forth or set forth this relationship of God and humanity, father and child. We began then to understand and try to understand what it means to be made in his image 
by what God does and what he says relative to his children. You can see his interaction with men immediately. He shares with them. He, he walks around. It's almost as if the father in creating the world begins to introduce his son to his home. He shares with him. He names things. He walks around. He tells them, these are the blessings of, of, of what I've done and what I've provided. Here's what you can do, and here's what you can't do, and here are the benefits and the rights and the privileges and the expectations all come out of this relationship. So let's turn back to Genesis chapter 1 and notice some of those things with this thought in mind. God and his son, God and his children, having made them in his image. We notice that in chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, God created man in his own image, in the image of God created he them. Male and female he created he them. And what did he say immediately thereafter? Notice verse 28. God communicated with them. He put them in charge of everything. And he says, and let them have dominion over the over everything, the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the heavens, the livestock, over all the earth and every creeping thing. God is saying to his son, you have charge. I'm giving you the responsibility of the power over everything that I've made. He created and communicated with them. He blessed them, verse number 28 says. He blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over all of these things. And then God says, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with the seed in it, the fruit, you shall have them for food. And so as you continue, you can almost immediately begin to see this interaction of father and son, this communications of blessings, and some of it involves commands. It's not simply I'm putting you in charge of everything. I'm giving you some responsibility to go along with that. And so we read chapter 2 and verse number 15 beginning where God says to Adam, he took the man, put him into the garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. The Lord commanded the man saying, of every tree of the field you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat of it from the day you eat thereof you will surely die. Part of the relationship is not peer to peer, it's father to child. And it's not unlike parents saying to their children, don't do that, or this will happen. You can't do that. You can have all of this. You can't have any of that. That's the kind of communication that God is having with his son. He is saying effectively, you can understand. Not only can you understand, you can imitate me. You can do what I'm saying. If you couldn't, I wouldn't tell it to you. If you couldn't, I wouldn't put you in the position, but I know that you can. And immediately, the ability of Adam and Eve is seen in what God is saying and explaining to them. As you continue to read chapter 2 of Genesis, after this, you hear God solve a problem that his son has. To what degree his son understood he had the problem? Well, I don't know. But immediately in verse number 18, the Bible says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good 
It's the first time the phrase is used in these chapters. It's not good. Everything else has been good. It's been good. It's been good. At the end of day six, he actually says it's very good. But he returns here and he sees his son alone, and for the first time, God says something's not good. What's not good? It's not good that the man should be alone. And so what does God do? He fixes the problem. I will make him a helper fit for him. I'll make him one suitable for him. God has given Adam everything, all of the responsibility, this charge, everything so far, and yet Adam doesn't have someone for him. And so God says, I'll fix it again. Not unlike what parents do. Their children have lack, their children have some issue. Parents solve the problem for them. And as parents are wont to do, they use the available resources to them. If they have money and it requires that, they use the money. If it's time, then they have it, they use the time. If it's some energy or power or might, they need it, they use that. If it's in the parent's hand to solve the children's problems, whatever they have, that's what they use. Now, I only say that because God is the one solving the problem. Let me ask you this, what's at his disposal? Not our sermon tonight, I agree, everything. Not our sermon tonight, but I'd like for you to think about it. Where does that place then the value, the significance, the worth of women in creation? Because if the father is going to solve the problem for his son, and the father has infinite knowledge, infinite power, infinite resources, and infinite ability, and what he uses that to make is a woman. Well, that tells you a whole lot then about what the father thought and what he did. What's the solution for his son's problem? Heaven presents woman. That's what God does. God fixes the problem with the creation of Eve, woman. He solved the problem for his son. I said, not our sermon. That's how you get to good morning and good afternoon. That's how you do that, is you, I'm not doing that. I'm moving on. He provided and oversaw and then encouraged his son. Notice verse number 19. Verse 18 is simply said by God. Adam's not in on that. God said that. And then immediately the scene shifts. We don't immediately make Eve. That's the conclusion God has drawn in verse 18. What happens next and the immediacy is God oversaw, encouraged, and approved of his son's first attempt at imitation. That's what he does. Because the Bible says now, out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man. Note the next expression, to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to all the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. He oversaw, encouraged, and waited for his son to imitate him. You do this. You know how everything else gets named? God does it. Go back and read chapter 1 and you'll hear, and God said, let there be, and it's called light. And God called the earth, dry land earth and the seas water. He called seas. He names them. And then we get here, and God says, okay, son, you can do it too. Whatever you name them, that's going to be. Parents, 
again, they do the same thing. The child asks for a pet, and they go, and they say, okay, we're going to get a pet, and we're going to get a snake, a dog, or I don't know, a, a cat. We're going to get something. And the child says, I want that one. Okay. And then the parent says, now, what are you going to call them? Wait, you're going to let me name them? You're going to let me, me, me name them? Yes, son, you, you, whatever the name you is, whatever the name you call, that's going to be the name. And so if it's Fuzzy, Mr., I don't know, whoever, Peanut Butter and Jelly, that's, that's the name. If you name it that, that's the name. And that, that's kind of what's happening here. Can you imagine the love the child feels, the confidence, the, 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 my parents trust me to name my, and I'm going to care for, and I'm going, that's, that's exact. You go through Scripture, and it's simply amazing what God lets us do. It's really incredible what God allows. He allows, he encourages, he oversees his child's efforts at imitation. God could simply do everything. He just doesn't. God has created the world, and then he said, Adam, you name the animals. He didn't just say that, though. God's going to destroy the world in chapter 6. Who's going to build the ark? Not God. But if you can create a world, you can build a boat. Noah, you build the boat. Joseph, you save the people. God sent me here to save much people alive. Who will build the temple? David said, I'll be, no, not you, but your son will. Solomon will build the temple. Moses will bring Israel out of Egyptian bondage. In fact, the law is sometimes referred to as the law of Moses. The people in Israel are sometimes referred to as Moses' people. In fact, God says that in Exodus 30 31, 32, when they're building that golden calf. He says, the people you brought out, your people, they're stiff-necked. Moses said, no, they're your people. <laughs> the apostles sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. 12 men charged with the gospel inside of them. We have this treasure in earthen vessels. God has taken the totality of his plan and put it in man and said, y'all go spread the gospel to the whole world. And they did. It's simply amazing what God allows his children to do. Jesus said, it's the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. He allowed him to choose. That's part of having his image. That's what it means. When we get to chapter 3, that's exactly what happens. He's already given them a command. And sometimes this is where it's really tempting for parents to kind of slide off the rail. You don't want your child to make a mistake. I got you. You don't want your child to get hurt. I got you. You don't want your child to fail. I got you. And so what are you going to do? I'm going to do everything for them. That's a big mistake. While we certainly don't encourage failure, it is part of the learning process, though. And trying is where the success is. And you are not going to be able to stop your child from bumping their toe, hurting their knees, scraping themselves up. You're not going to be able to be there. And if you do, you'll make a very weak and dependent child if you do that. God has given them the commands, chapter 2, verses 15 to 17, and now God expects and watches them to choose correctly. And so we get to chapter 3, and what happens? The serpent, more subtle than any beast of the field, says to the woman, has the Lord God, he said to the woman, has God said you should not eat of every tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, from the tree of the trees of the garden, we may freely eat. But from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. The serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. God knows in the day you eat of it, 
Your eyes will be open. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw the tree, that it was good for food, a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit. She did eat, gave it also to her husband, and he did eat. And God blew up the world. No, it's not at all what he did. That's the way we behave. But let me ask you this. When your child messed up, is that what you did? No. You come and you correct and you instruct and you teach. And if necessary, you punish with a view of helping them not do that again. That's exactly what God does. He allows them to choose, and when they choose wrong, he follows up. That's what we're reading in verse number 7. The eyes of them both were open. They knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together, made themselves loin coverings. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. They hid themselves from him, and he came to them. And the Lord God called to the man. He asked him, where are you? He questioned them. He said, I heard you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I command you not to eat? And this goes on, and this questioning, this, this backwards and forwards, ultimately to get Adam to understand what he's done. You've done wrong. You have violated. You've disobeyed. But it ends up being a teachable moment, and right in the middle of it, Right in the middle of it, verse number 15, the Bible says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Very often when children make mistakes, even older children, they don't always fully know the ramifications and implications of what could have been. Sometimes they don't fully appreciate, fully grasp. Do you know how bad this could have been? Sometimes parents say. We were just having fun, but you know that could have altered the course of your life. That could have sent you down a different path altogether, and we wouldn't have been able to stop it. That's God asking Eve, what have you done? There's no way she could have fully appreciated that, but he did. He knew precisely what she had done by allowing sin into the world and by allowing death into the world. Humanity has a problem now that humanity cannot fix. And if left alone, hell is our home. Because if you sin without any hope of redemption, there's no place for you to go. God knows that. And so people read and are like, yeah, well, he punished them. Yes, but right in the middle of that, he says, I'm going to fix it. I'm going to bring the Savior. In fact, I'm going to, the divine nature will take on flesh and die to fix this. That's in the third chapter of our Bibles. That's God and his father, God and his son. God's actions toward man might help us understand what it means to have his image. We, we might learn what it means by God's protection of man. It's ultimately a protection of his image. In chapter 4, when Cain kills Abel, Cain killed someone who shared the image of God. That's why God is coming to him. That's why it's a problem. The Lord said to Cain in verse number 6, Why are you angry? Why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? Verse number 8, the Bible says, Cain told his brother Abel, and what came about when they were in the field, that Cain rose up against his brother, and he killed him. He murdered him. The Lord God said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know him. I'm my brother's keeper. He said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. 
What did he do? He killed someone who shared the image of God. And God is extremely interested in that. Why will Cain be punished? That's why. And that punishment will end in ultimately the protection of, of Cain by way of no one else hurting him. But the reason he's concerned about Cain's actions is he killed someone who shared his image, and God protects that. In chapter 9 of Genesis, when Noah and his family come off the ark, many things have changed as a result of the flood, not just the topography of the earth, but many other things have changed as well, and among them is how men will deal with murder. There will be justice, and it will be meted out by men for men's behavior. Verse number five, he says, surely I will require your lifeblood from every beast. I will require it. And from every man, from every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. Why? The explanation is provided. For in the image of God, he made man. What does it mean to have his image, to be made in his image? Well, his actions demonstrate the value and the worth and the dignity of it, even the sacredness of it, because he will protect it. He will defend it. It's in every area of our Bible. Justice will be meted out for those who shed man's blood. Exodus chapter 20 and verse 13, you'll find it there. You'll also find it in the New Covenant, Romans chapter 13, you'll find it there. 1 Peter 2, 17, we are to submit to every ordinance, but Romans 13 says he does not bear the sword in vain. Why will there be, and why is it just to have capital punishment? Why is that? Because men share the image of God. You hear people debate things, well, I don't know that capital punishment is right, and I don't think you should be doing that. Friends, listen. Would you please just start with the Bible? And if the Bible says do it, make sure you do that. And if the Bible teaches it, make sure you believe that. Don't start anywhere else. Start in the Bible. And if Romans 13 says that capital punishment by those who govern is God's design and intention because they share the image of God, then you want to take that position. Now, if you want to say, I don't like it, well, that's a personal issue that you have one way or the other. If you're being honest, there's probably more than one or two things you don't like that God says. But like children to parents, that's not wildly surprising. But I'll tell you what you want to believe and practice is what the Bible teaches. And what the Bible teaches is there is a difference between murder and killing people. And so sometimes people say, well, they allowed it in the Old Testament. They, they didn't, God did not endorse murder. He's never, he's never endorsed murder. He's never approved of murder. There is justice meted out, and it's not the same as murder. In fact, God protects human life. It's sacred to him because it's his image. Proverbs 6, 16 and 17, among the things that God hates is the shedding of innocent blood. If you look up the word innocent, it actually involves both children. It certainly involves that because babies are innocent, certainly so. But it also involves those who are innocent of a crime or an oath. That is, the person may be an adult, thus not innocent in the sense of never done wrong like a child, but innocent in this regard and not worthy of what you have done to them. 
Well, now that's also part of it. You'll want to see somebody like Naboth. The taking of his vineyard, that's innocent blood. Naboth was innocent. Ahab and Jezebel conspired a plan to take the man's land, and effectively they simply said, let's lie on him and then hire people to kill him. Well, God will hate that. God hates that. That's innocent blood. Uriah would be innocent blood. David lusted after a woman, got her pregnant, and then sent to the battlefield, brought her husband in, and inevitably killed him. God hates that. That's innocent blood. Uriah doesn't deserve that. That's not justice. He hates the shedding of innocent blood. Does it include? Absolutely it includes baby. But listen, it's more than that. When someone's life does not need and is not supposed to justly be taken, he would hate for you to— Abel suffered at the hands of Cain. He murdered—that's innocent blood. You know who else has fallen to this category? Our Lord and our Savior is innocent blood. They conspired, they lied with no charges, basically put him to death under false pretense. They shed innocent blood. God protects his image. That's what it means. We might learn what it means by the price God paid to save man. If you and I could value a soul, attach a dollar amount to a soul, which we cannot, but if we could, it would give us some sense then of what the high cost of one to be redeemed is. And when you're reading the Scriptures, what you're reading is God's actions to redeem souls, those who share His image. What's it worth to Him? Ephesians 3, 9 and 11 says He purposed it in eternity before there was a man to save. He had a plan to save him. The purpose was in eternity. The plan ultimately was for his son, for the, the mem uh, member of the Godhead to take on flesh and die, and that was the high price paid. Christ's blood saved man. That's the cost. I hear sometimes people say God's blood. It's not something you kind of hear very often, and when you hear it, it kind of, it, 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 for me anyway, it kind of jarred me a little. God's blood, that's an interesting thought. However, since Christ is God and he shed his blood, God did have blood then. And what was the cost for us? That blood. That's the price of redemption. The Jesus' death on the cross, that's the price. Ephesians 1 and verse number 7, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. That's the cost of the church, the purchased possession. Acts 20 and verse 28, take heed to yourselves, to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost has made you overseers, to feed the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. That's the price. What does it mean to share his image? It certainly means there is a high worth and value to humanity. Jesus would say one soul is worth the entire created order. What shall a man be proud if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? He actually has nothing to trade or barter. He has nothing to equal the worth of his soul. We might learn what it means by God's willingness to become one of us. It's an amazing, it's an amazing thing. God makes us in his image, and then we sin against God, and then God comes into our image in order to redeem us back to himself. 
That's what we're reading in the first chapter of John, and we've been talking about it for a while now, that he was with God and was God, and he is divine, and he is the creator, and he is independent, and he is the light of the world, and he came to his own, and his own received him not. But to those who did receive him, to them he gave the right to become the sons of God, the word made flesh full of grace and truth. We might also learn what it means by what appears, at least in my estimation, heavenly beings' interest in the entire process. And so we talk about mankind, we talk about the God of heaven, and then we talk about angels. And it seems the three are connected and in concert in some way, working out our redemption. In fact, the Hebrew writer will say they are sent on behalf of those who will inherit eternal salvation. And so, we might learn it by their interest, in God's interest, in us. In Hebrews chapter 1, if you have your Bibles, in Hebrews chapter 1, the Hebrew writer opens beginning to talk about our Lord and why he is superior. Superior, he will say, superior to Moses, superior to Joshua, superior to Aaron, superior to the, the, the sacrifices, and on and on he'll go. Jesus is better. He begins, however, talking about Jesus being superior to angels. Jesus is divine. That's how it opens here in the first three verses. God, who in sundry times and in diverse manners spake in times past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, through whom or by whom he has created all things. And he is, verse number three says, with reference to Jesus, he is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature. He upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he, Christ, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high having become so much better than the angels. He has inherited a more excellent name than they. And the conversation from here to the end of the chapter begins in earnest. And he says, for to which of the angels did he say at any time, thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. The, the writer's point is he's never said that to an angel. He has, however, said that to the Christ. He says when he brings them, the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. And so when Christ comes into the world, what do we find in Luke's account? The heavenly host praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest. What are they doing? He says the angels then worship him. Of the angels, he says, who make his angels winds, his ministers flame of fire. That's what he says to the angels. And of them, he will say in verse number 14, they are servants. But unto the Son, what does he say there in verse number 8? He says, to the Son, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. That is the Father talking to the Son. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever, a scepter of righteousness, a scepter of thy kingdom. Jesus is superior to angels in every way. We're not really talking so much about that as to make the point, though, that as you go through the rest of chapter 1, you get over to about verse number 13. But to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand? He's never said that to an angel either. He did say that to Christ. 
until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. With reference to angels, he says, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit eternal salvation? Well, what was the point in case you've forgotten? The point was the angel's interest in man and God's working with and on the behalf of man. And so we end chapter 1 with reference to angels. In fact, from verse 3 to the end, verse 4 to the end of chapter 1, we've been talking about angels and Christ's superiority. So what happens next? Notice as you continue to read, for this reason, we must pay the more closer attention to what we have heard, lest at any time we let them slip or drift away from them. For if the word spoken through angels, that is referencing the Old Testament, if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable and every transgression disobedience is either a just penalty, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard, with reference to the New Testament. God also testifying with them both signs and wonders and by various miracles and the gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. Verse number five, for he did not subject to angels the world to come concerning which we are speaking, but one. One what? One what? Now, when you go and you look this up, and you'll find where it says one in a certain place, it will say but one. The reason I read from verse 3 all the way down here to chapter 2 and verse 4 is to try to set the framework that the context keeps talking about angels. So I'm going to urge that the one in verse number 5 is an angel. Verse number 6, but one. If you go backward, it would be angels in verse 5, angels all the way back up into verse 14, all the way back over to chapter 3. Now, what I'm about to say leads me to the conclusion, I will not be dogmatic about this. I'm simply trying to explain that I believe what we're reading here is an angel's interest in humanity. And more specifically, an angel's interest in God's interest of humanity. What does the one in a certain place say? Verse number six. But one has testified somewhere saying, what is man that you remember him? or the son of man, that you are concerned about him. For you have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor. You have appointed over him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. What is he that you are so interested in him? That seems to be the question. It's actually a quote from Psalm 8. And when reading Psalm 8, those are the words you'll read, but they begin this way. When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers. And so now it leads the, the impression that someone is able to look out in the vastness of creation, to look out over the scale and the magnitude, and consider it. When I consider your heavens talking to God, the work of your fingers. And so, there's a comparison being made. I'm looking out at the creation. I see the work of your hands. And now it leads me to this question. In light of all that you've done, what is man that you are so mindful of him? And the son of man that you would visit him, provide care, look out after him. What is it about him that makes him so significant to you? What is it? That's the question. And then these answers are provided. 
And the answers are given, and I hope you'll remember them because we'll revisit them in the next week or two when we talk more about his image. But notice the four or five things the individual says that God has done with reference to man specifically. He says, you have made him a little lower, and depending on rendering, it might say heavenly beings, it might say gods, it might say angels. You've made him a little lower than heavenly beings. You've made him a little lower than angels. That's what you've done. You did that. He's not asking, did you do that? He is saying, I've observed. That's what you did. You made him a little lower than the angels. But not only that, you crowned him with glory and honor. We'll talk in a couple of weeks, I think, about what you think it means. And I hope you can remember to remember these things. Because every human being is crowned with glory and honor. It's not debatable. It's not optional. It's not if you meet a certain threshold. No, no, no. Whoever is talking here is stating facts. You have crowned him with glory and honor. You have set him over the works of your hands. You have made him a little lower than the angels. You made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. You did that. All the sheep, all the oxen, beasts of the field, you did that. That's Psalm 8 about verse 3 down to verse number 7. That's what's being quoted here. And ultimately, it turns into a description of Jesus because Jesus becomes a man. And so for a little while, Jesus is made lower. Verse number 9 following. I believe an angel is asking God, what is man that you have given this much energy this much effort, this much care, this much concern, this crowning, this dominion, this works, you have done all of that for him. And the answer might be, if God were to give one, and I don't know that he does, but the answer might be, he's my son. What is man? He is God's son. Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Why are you so mindful of him? Let me ask you, parents, when wouldn't you be mindful of your children? When will you stop caring? When will you say, enough is enough, you're on your own? When will the word spill off your lips, I don't care what happens to you? And if your answer is never, well, then you are getting close. And now if you can just make that infinite, then you will have God and his children. Why are you so mindful? I love him. And to have him back, I'll die for him. The image of God can be understood because God is our father and we are his children by what he says after he makes us, by what he does, by what he provides, by his protection, and by ultimately his redemption. 
God's willingness to save us so that we can be at home with him. United Christian tonight, you know you share the image of God. God has at least two kinds of children. He has created children, and he has covenant children. Those who are his created children share his image, and God loves them. In fact, he loves them so much that while they were yet sinners, Christ died for them. But it's to the end that they might become part of his covenant children. Christ died so that you can be saved. Would you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? We talked about it this morning. After hearing and learning, you have to believe, and that belief is what moves you to change your mind. God did that for me. You know, it's a different picture of God when you read the Bible and you let God talk rather than let people talk for him or about him. But you, when you read the Bible, God is so good, a loving father, kind and gracious, benevolent and good, the kind of father that if you were in a pig's pen, you would want to get up out of and run home. That's what God wants for you tonight. Believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and change your mind. The Bible calls it repentance. Say the same thing. Say you believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That's who he is, and that's what he said. And then be baptized for the remission of your sins, and God will save you. You'll be born again into the family of God, Ephesians 3.15. But if you are his child, my prayer for you is that you will never spend a second, not a second, not a minute, not an hour or a day, believing your father doesn't love you and your father doesn't want you to be at home with him in heaven. If we can help you in any way, we invite you to come as we stand and as we sing.